Ding ding! This pod will be calling at all stations as we travel to Leafy Newfoundland with Tom McCarthy's underappreciated indie gem, The Station Agents. We'll be discussing the amazing Peter Dinklage, the much underused Bobby Cannavale, and Jake's deep, deep love for Patricia Clarkson. I'm Tom. This is Jake. I do love Patricia Clarkson. And this is First to Die. Hello, welcome to First to Die, where we're going to look at first person to die in a movie and think about how that impacts the uh, the overall plot and progress and catalysm of the whole thing. I'm joined with my good friend, co-host and partner in crime, it's Jake. How are you doing, buddy? I am very well. Thank you, Tom. And I'm excited to talk on this First to Die episode, a bit of a drama that we're looking at this week. Very excited for that. It's a bit of a gear change for us, isn't it? You know, it is. I know we uh, a lot of the other movies we've done so far. It's a little bit of a kind of guilty celebratory woohoo moment with that first death. It's a little bit, it's a bit morbid, but it's also a little bit fun because it's usually the sort of the start of where the action really kicks in for a movie. But this is a, it's kind of a sad one. So I guess the we kind of a reverential tone this time. Yeah, but it's good to be jumping around genres, right? It's good to be trying out different films where. The first to die has, as you said, you know, a, a catalyst to the story in a different way. And this is certainly that. I enjoyed it, but I won't give too much away. We can dive straight in if you want, and you can introduce the film because this uh, episode's film was your choice. It was my choice, yeah. And this is one of my uh, little sort of hidden ace card films that not you know, some people have heard of it, a lot of people haven't. And it's quite a sweet little movie. And uh, you can kind of pull it out from your sleeve because it's got some good actors in there as well and it's good pedigree and it's just a sweet little film uh, and I like waving this one around because it makes me look arty and filmy and some people haven't seen it which amuses me. So we're going to be talking about uh, The Station Agent uh, which yes. is uh, I'll do let's try and do a little 30 second summary shall we and you can you can time All me right. on it. Um, I've got my stopwatch I am ready and prepared so <laughs> as soon as you begin the summary I will start the stopwatch. So when you're ready, take it away. Okay, let's go. So The Station Agent is a 2003 movie directed by Tom McCarthy, and it stars Peter Dinklage as a man called Finn, who has bequeathed a a little uh, sort of station, essentially. I can't, I can't remember what they, they kind of refer to it as, like a, um, a, a little outpost for uh, for trains out in the middle of nowhere. And he goes and lives there, and he makes two friends. The end. <laughs> well, you had about two seconds left on the clock there. So well done. I think that was well summarized. It was a depot. For some a reason, depot, they, call it, they call it a depot. but I wasted not... 15 seconds just trying to remember the word depot. That's true. But that's okay. I didn't want to help. I didn't want to jump in. It's a challenge after all these 30 seconds uh, <laughs> summaries. And I'll be, I'm sure on other episodes, I'll be uh, stumbling over my words to try and summarize other films. But it's yeah, quite it's a cute little depot, though, isn't it? It's, it's got a, a very cute little, little depot. It's, it's, kitchen, it's got a tiny bathroom. Yeah, but it's not <laughs> the kind of depot that we have over here in the UK. You know, our depots are. are kind of industrial that's like a cute little out like you, you call it an outpost i think that's actually more accurate well it is otherwise you know, the one in this country would be like just outside crew or something wouldn't it just in yep. manchester and it would be very bleak but this is very charming i mean uh, he lives in a just to sort of jump around a little bit he, he starts the film in hoboken new jersey mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this is all the way out in newfoundland which i imagine was like by the way that the film sells it makes it sound like it is like in the middle of nowhere, but it's 70 miles away. 
70 miles away and it's still New Jersey, right? And it's still in New Jersey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they make it sound like it's the middle of bumfuck nowhere in the film. They literally say, oh, there's not much out there. It's very pretty, but there's nothing going on. So I was imagining it was going to be literally, you know, countryside and fields as far as the eye could see. No, it's a town. It's a proper town. Yeah, it's quite, quite a charming, there. delightful town. I, I, sure. I grew up in the middle of nowhere. I know what middle of nowhere looks like. Oh, <laughs> That's actually... Go. Here we go. When I was a lad. Um, so that's just the so so one of the things I, I did want to point out as well, like there's um it's an interesting movie in that it's uh, Tom McCarthy's first film that mm-hmm. he wrote and directed. And he's an interesting character, is is Tom McCarthy, because he's one of those sort of bit of a, a polymath of kind of writing director. He did he was an actor for a very long time, but very much did character roles. Right. And you can see that I think in this movie that it's very, very character driven. And I don't think I think he's also like he's made sure there is a good actor throughout for every for every role that there are and there's like there are some scenes where it's just you know one one person just for a brief scene but it feels like you know someone that's really gone out and found just the perfect actor for that little scene you know rather than just oh just cast anyone I don't really care no and allegedly and I don't know how true it is but allegedly he was friends with Peter Dinklage who plays Finn um, and you know, thought he was such a, an incredible actor. I mean, we know Peter Dinklage, obviously from Game of Thrones and a whole host of other movies now. He's kind of become a bit of a household name. But at the time, uh, he wasn't that well known, hadn't done a huge amount of films. And Tom McCarthy just was like, you're brilliant. I want to make a movie for you. I'm going to write this movie for you and put a lot of Peter Dinklage's kind of experiences into the movie, which definitely comes across yeah, you like at the beginning that. when... Uh, and I was uh, when I was rewatching, I was trying to work out, like, is it slightly over-egging that almost everyone that he encounters is kind of looking at him or whispering or laughing. But I think even if it's not everyone who's laughing at him, when you are someone who has differences, you know, and and I've experienced this when I've been like holding a guy's hand or something, you do get this sense of like, people are looking at me and it's not, and it's just because it's different and it's not because they're being rude and it's not because they're homophobic and they're, they're, they're after me. It's just, it's just different. So their eyes linger on you. And then also, you know, if you hear people laughing behind you, you, you start thinking, are they laughing at me? They could just be laughing about something yeah. completely different. Yeah. Um, so you sort of like, it, it does a very quick job, I think, of just establishing that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough life being Peter Dinklage. Yeah. Or, or Finn, shall we say. It's, um, it's one of the notes that I wrote down, actually, that I felt uh, that, you know, the, I felt the reactions from the public and the people and the characters that were just kind of everyday um, Americans in it were a little overblown um, in their reactions to Peter Dinklage and Finn's dwarfism. But I think that's probably purposeful. Of course, it's not going to be always that extreme. But the point of this is that it does try to portray the feelings that he must be going through that character and Peter Dinklage in general as well. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, there were times where I thought there was a quick succession and we'll get to it a little bit later of characters who encounter Finn that I just was a little bit tired of the same reaction or, you know, Oh, okay. It's going to the, literally the first thing they're going to do is be shocked or do something because of his, dwarfism and i know from experience and okay it's a 2003 film is it yeah 2003 yeah you know time's moved on a little bit we're 17 years on now but i know plenty of people that would never react in that way to somebody um looking different Mm -hmm. but anyway yeah you're you're also right that it, it, it i think it's 
more to portray the internal emotions and feelings of the character um, that he may just be believing that these people are doing that in some respects and and a lot of them are but it may be overblown in his head as well yeah because he's not in a it's not in a good place is he when when we start really you know like before even the the, the tragic event that we'll get onto in a minute he doesn't look like he he loves life you know he doesn't well, no. not smiling much you can see why he's got you know and later in the film he kind of sort of says like it's it's kind of ironic that so many people are so fascinated and interested in me when I'm actually a relatively boring person you know mm. like I'm, there there isn't much that's actually interesting about me but you know and you see like he's got a, a pretty pretty boring life really he doesn't seem particularly happy with it he, he he has a job and he goes to his train club with with his like friends but he doesn't look like he's loving it he's not smiling at all he's not he's not chatty and friendly to be perfectly honest with you when the film opened I thought they were Jehovah's Witnesses in the little suit. because they were so Finn and his uh, friend and colleague who we will get on to are wearing black suits and they're literally, they look like, you know, what you would wear to a funeral. It's white shirt, black tie, black suit. And they're walking the street kind of to begin with as well. And I thought, okay, Jehovah's Witness, you know, they're coming to knock on the door to talk about Jesus, but they don't. They're working in a train store. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Finn is not happy. There's plenty of opportunity for you to, as a viewer, to think, okay, we're seeing this guy and his passion. But for the first, and, and I, I should uh, preface this with the fact that uh, I had not seen this film. You'd recommended it to me. Um, I watched it specifically for this podcast. So I had no understanding or, or I hadn't even read a, a synopsis beforehand. I wanted to go in completely blind. So I went in there with the title, The Station Agent. I got the impression at the beginning that the guy hated stuff that he was doing. There's, yeah, sure, he, he, he starts out fixing a few model trains. But there's a scene with the guy who's filmed trains and it's the most boring you know it very much reminded me of ferris bueller's day off with the teacher trying to teach the class and half the yeah. class falling asleep and bueller bueller that thing there's a guy kind of commentating his train footage and peter dinklage looks like he's going to blow his brains out yeah do you want to know a fascinating fact about that guy i recognized him yeah he's uh he's called john john pace mm -hmm. uh, he plays carl in that scene and he was the voice of Raphael in the turtles my least favorite turtle. <laughs> well, that's because he's a dick. <laughs> Raphael is a dick. Well, maybe. There's actually there. There is another. There's another bit of voice voice acting royalty in this film, but I will save that for a bit later. Oh, tell me later. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, Carl, good old Carl. No, it it was interesting to to open, and and of course the the two main characters when we open, um, and I don't know if you want to uh, name check our first to die. Well, that's Henry. It's Henry. Good old Henry. Good old Henry. Henry is is what you know. So his his colleague, his friend, his his fellow Jehovah's Witness, who isn't a Jehovah's Witness, Henry, who is a much older black gentleman, whereas Finn is a white younger dwarf. Can I say that? You know, white younger dwarf. It's called dwarfism, yeah. right? So they're an old couple. Let's just they put it that and way. I wonder if there the, there is that affinity from someone who is. You know, growing up in America through 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, Henry knows what it's like to be looked at differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe that's where those kind of like, that's why they have a nice little friendship. Because, you know, we see Henry kind of slightly sticking up for Finn in a late scene where, you know, he kind of 
corrects the young guy's attention for staring at him. You know, you can see why they, they may have this sort of, they're a bit of an odd couple, but you can see why they, they might have this affinity and this friendship. So uh, I think we should probably talk about Henry a little bit more now we've been talking about him and get into our kind of, you know, and, and the role that he plays in it because he isn't in it for a very long time. No, but he's uh, But he's, he's, a, he's a good, he's an interesting character and he's got an interesting career as well. I was having a look look back. Uh, his name is Paul Benjamin, by the way. And uh, he started in theatre in New York in the 60s. And I know I kind of say this all the time, but every time I look through someone's IMDb, I'm like, I just want their life. And just, just on, the idea of growing up. bad. Come on now. But just growing up in the, you know, the, just imagine being part of the, the theatre scene in New York in the late 60s, early 70s. That just sounds yep. so yep. cool. Um, and so he did a lot of work in theatre as well. And then was kind of part of like the black exploitation scene. I was going to say he was definitely part of the black exploitation scene in the seventies, which is an incredibly exciting movement in cinema. Exactly, yeah. Um, and TV, you know, Pam Greer, Hundred and Tenth Street, amazing, really yeah. cool. And yeah, I was looking through some of his pictures after I watched the film, and I thought, Christ, this guy, what a what a mover and shaker, you know. Yeah, there's some cool movies. Definitely, kind of peaked, kind of in those seventies movies. Um, but, you know, he was also in, like, Escape from Alcatraz, Do the Right Thing. So some pretty cool movies. But I, don't, I, I think it's fair to say that his career never kind of blossomed into sort of a, you know, a household name. At no. all. Kind of then sort of moved into a lot of TV and bit parts and stuff. And uh, this was kind of in this sort of last, you know, he actually died in uh, 2019. Yeah. Just last year. Last in year. June. And, uh, you know, working up until the end, pretty much. So it was one of his, his later movies, to be sure. But yeah, I think I think you know he's still he's still memorable in this role though, and he still he's, he still has quite a lot of heavy lifting in that in those early scenes just to establish their friendship, their life together, this sort of little allyship that they have. And then his death is is relatively unexpected when you are kind of new to the movie. I know you were probably expecting it, Jake, but were you kind of expecting it so soon? In, in no, the no, no, I wasn't expecting it that soon, and I certainly um, so like I said, I went in there not knowing anything, and I I, I didn't suspect that that Henry was going to be the death. And it is very early in the film, you know, because it's actually the trigger. It leads to the rest of the story. And, it's, yeah. you know, it's not done in a showy way. The way that Henry dies is that Finn is working in the back of the shop. Um, Henry comes in and very, I, I thought very um, kind of cute in the way that he says, you know, it's lunch, lunch. We're getting lunch now. You know, he just comes in and, and, and what, what played off of that one line where he just says lunch is that they've done it a million times and that maybe Finn needs to be reminded. He needs to come out and join society and not be in the dark uh, back room. It's lunch. And then immediately after you just hear the thud, you know? Well, you get the little, uh, and I, I can't work out every time I see it, whether it's it's a really beautiful shorthand or if it's a little bit on the nose in that Finn elbows a little station agent little figure and he falls over and as that figure falls over then you hear a thud off screen Mm. and i like to think it's quite cute but i'm i'm i was also a little bit like is this just a little bit on the nose did we did we really need it you know is it is a little bit first time director kind of showing off a little bit I would say for this one, I'd allow it because actually there aren't many other instances in this film where he does something cutesy and on the nose. Yeah. In fact, they're incredibly rare. It's a very restrained film in many instances. And actually that, because that's the biggest event that happens really to make everything else start, you know, the dominoes tumbling. I'll give him that. I like that it's a little bit of a moment. Okay. Like I said, when I was watching it, 
he knocks the station agent over the little model and then you hear the thud and of course you immediately know you're like okay yeah that's that's it henry's gone but it didn't feel cheap to me it didn't feel you know uh too cutesy i liked it and you you're immediately invested in oh christ how is finn gonna take this you know because that that's his world that's his routine uh, and everything and it, it does move on quite you know because we've already been moving quite quickly up into this point and then Finn walks out. You see Henry on the floor, and then I think do you pretty much instantly cut to the lawyer's you do. room with the reading of the will, um, and basically being told that his life, as it currently is, is over because it's not just like oh well you can carry on going to work. It's like no, the shop's being sold, all the assets are being liquidated. You know, so suddenly Finn just instantly has lost his his best friend, and as as you suggest, maybe the the thing that gets him out of the back room, the the connection yep. to society. Uh, you know, his his routine. And I think that their little railway club was being held in that shop. It looked kind of looked like it. So, you know, like everything's taken away from him that moment. But it also kind of, I think he is, I suppose in script writing terms, like he's the, he's the herald and he's the call to adventure for Finn in that he is then bequeathed this little depot out mm-hmm. in the middle of somewhere he's, he's never heard of and has no idea what it's going to be. Um, and then I think you kind of go from that scene pretty much to the next day and he's setting off to go go traveling to the depot, which uh, again is one of those scenes where like I, every time I see his film, I'm like, it, it baffles me a bit in that he kind of walks to the depot along the train tracks. And I'm like, that, that can't be safe. And I just, I just kind of think, is it just a little bit too, too twee and a little bit too kind of, you know, indie director that no, no, he's not going to get in a train and travel there. No, he's going to walk by the train tracks. Sometimes on the train tracks. I think, A, we live in the UK and we're you used arrested. to... A, a, yeah, yeah, you get arrested. There's the third line. You know, the, the trains are, are powered by an electric third rail and that's very dangerous if you get near it. You know, we had it shouted at us from a very young age that if you touch third rail, you die. You're electrocuted, you die. So we don't go near the tracks. Whereas I think in the US it's different. And also, I don't think the trains are as often, yeah. right? You know, UK, every half hour. It's a tra- the whole of the UK is a train network, whereas the US, I think it's, I think they talk that there's five hours difference sometimes between trains going past. And they mentioned that in this film. But I did know, I was watching it because he, he walks a hell of a lot of that journey on the train tracks. Well, you know, I, I was sat there earlier and I was like, because it always, it always just struck me as really strange. I was like, why is he walking this? And like, how long is this taking? So I Google mapped it from Hoboken to Newfoundland. It's about 70 miles. Mm-hmm. Google thinks you can do that in a 14-hour walk. So he may necessarily not necessarily do it all in one day. He might have a couple of breaks. We don't know how long he's walking for. Do, do we not have a shot of him jumping on any other form of transport? No, no. He just He's just walking, looking at trains. And I don't know whether this was because I, I was really struggling to find this on any of the streaming network, like platforms at the moment. It all seems to have vanished. So I did have to download a, a slightly dodgy copy of it. And those, the leaves of New Jersey are so green in my copy of it. It like seared my eyeballs. Like it was so vividly green. It's like I, every time I close my eyes, I can just see. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have that. It wasn't, um, it wasn't ridiculously green for me, but it was reminiscent of stand by me reminiscent of that classic american 
walking along the train line journey. We find out he does walk a lot. You know, he does. Yeah. He loves walking and he loves What's walking along called? train tracks. Walking the line. Is it walking the line? Or is it walking the right of way or something? Oh, yeah. Walking the right of way. We should know. I think it's I think it's walking the right of way. Um, because there was, he explains at one point in the film, it's about, does, yeah. yeah, the right of way of stuff. <laughs> I was, it was, it was where, where the train line was coming through, wasn't it? Where the yeah. Was. Yeah. He does that a lot. And, and yeah, it was an odd thing though. I, I did think Christ, this journey for him is, is taking a while and he has no possessions really. Um, he's left wherever he was before. I'm assuming, I don't know that he decided to leave all of that behind because there was nothing left. Obviously, we know the shop was going to be sold off, but was he subleasing from Henry? Well, you see them like he not kind of looks like he's walking down a corridor and knocking on his door in like mm. the first scene. So you imagine that you know, like they maybe they either live in the same apartment block or yeah, or at least he's subleasing or, or something, or even that's could be his house. It does always strike me every time I watch it of this like again, is is it a bit too cute that he walks all the way there? Like would it have been so hard to have seen him on a couple of modes of transport, like sitting on a train? It was certainly you know, a bit strange. I'll give you that. But at, at this point, here's a question. Did you feel any uh sorrow for him? Did you feel any empathy at this point in time? Because personally, well, I, th- I was just gonna say, like, I haven't learned enough about him as a character. You know, we you've had precious little details. So Yes, it's you can sympathize, but he's also not shown any emotion, like no. any emotion at all. He's kind of gone through the uh, the motions of it entirely, and you're like, okay, there's this guy's not really giving me anything at this point in time. No, I think that's that as a character though. He's obviously he's shut down quite a lot physically. You know, he pushes the world away, so he's quite a cold character. I actually made a note of that he doesn't smile till about fifty minutes into the movie. Wow. Um, you know, and then, and then he, does, he does do lots of smiling after that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and so I think you you empathize with him, you know, and you, you feel sorry for him a little bit because you see what his life is like. But yeah, you, you don't, you're not particularly engaged with him, but I think we're only about eight minutes into the movie at this point. So I think yeah. it's, this I'm is kind of your, come. this is sort of where you, you kind of start really to know him as an individual and, and how he operates. Mm. Um which is probably like like kind of where we can you know introduce the sort of the two other main characters in his life really. Um, yep. So you've got you've got Joe, who's played by Bobby Cannavale, who is one of the most underrated actors in America right now. He's in a hell of a lot of stuff, but he does not get his credit. What an incredible actor! Yeah, he's mm-hmm. an Ant Man and the Wasp. Now listen. <laughs> I'm very disappointed that that's what you've honed in on. <laughs> I love Marvel and Ant-Man and the Wasp is is a great fun film. Personally, for me, Bobby Cannavale, it's about Mr. Robot, um, his brief spit in that, and then um, something like uh, Homecoming, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, the same um, creator, Sam Esmail. Oh, just tour de forces. The, the guy is able to do a lot of different um, performances. Um, and also, he was a bit part in something like Masters of None. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's great. He's such a good actor. Yeah, I, I love him in this role as well because he's he's such the antithesis of of Finn. Of in that Finn, he's yeah. just, you know, he, he's physically a big, imposing character. He's full of life. He goes out of his way to meet every, you know, meet every stranger, talk to everyone that he meets, mm. play with everyone that he meets, you know, play mm. soccer or anything. Um, and but in a still a likable way because you could imagine in other hands you'd just be like this guy is so annoying why would anyone want to be friends with him but he's just so lovely 
that even you know Finn can't help but start being charmed by him and start you know having those walls brought down just by his enthusiasm. Yeah. And then you've also got Olivia, uh, played by Patricia Clarkson. Um, oh my and, God, I love Patricia Clarkson. Who is just, I think she's got one of the best voices in the business as well, hasn't she? She's, just, she's got one of those voices, God. along with Sigourney Weaver, who we'll get on the show when we do Aliens. Of course. Um, you know, you could, you could, she could read the phone book, you know, and it would be, oh, yeah. it would be lovely. Like, she's, and I look, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. I find her very sexy. She's a sexy lady. <laughs> she's a sexy lady. I love her. I mean, for me, she, and this is really ridiculous. And this is again, going off on one of our famous uh, tracks uh, away from the film, but I've quoted Patricia Clarkson a million times to my friends, because we always joke about some of the stuff she says in one of my all time favorite films, Guilty Pleasures, Easy A with Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. And Patricia Clarkson and uh, Stanley Tucci play pretty much the coolest and best the greatest parents, parents you could ever want. <laughs> you could ever want. Spell it with your peas. Spell it with your peas. And then, um, oh, she she has some. You know, she I could get my legs all the way back. She says this. You know, I could get them over my head. And then she'd come in and she'd say stuff in to to her daughter about you know uh it seems like your boyfriend is incredibly gay okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah brilliant i love her she's she's just she just can do anything as well it's this film the biggest surprise about this film was the the cast and just how many people showed up that have either done incredible stuff before or done incredible stuff since and I think it's a testament that, you know, the, the people believed in this film and they wanted to make something that was uh, special and impactful. And, you know, uh, it's definitely an indie. It's it's oh, yeah. it, it's a dramatic indie. That's the definition. That's the genre. She also got Michelle Williams in a yeah. in another quite major role, but she's not, she's not one of the main sort of three, but she's, well, she's, she's in it. I mean, I, it's, it's the, it's the three main, main sort of, it's a three hander between Finn, Joe and Olivia, but, you know, but Emily, who's Michelle Williams's character, is, she's kind of the love interest, and she does have they have quite a lot of scenes together. She's. I mean, I was surprised because obviously I I know Michelle Williams from many other films, and and she's uh, she's a big actress, you know, really big actress. But her part in this was small. But then, you know, seventeen years ago. Yeah, she was. This was like last season of Dawson's Creek, so I think. I think she was still playing it a little bit. She was Jen in Dawson's Creek, wasn't she? And she's still um, like the character is is. You don't tell me you've never seen Dawson's Creek. I didn't watch Dawson's oh Creek. Listen, man. Listen, okay. I was more of an OC person. Shh. I was all about Ryan Atwood, and that was the opposite of Dawson. You know, um, I got into the game late. Let's just put it that oh, way. Well, well, she played Jen, who yep. is very similar to the character here. Is um, oh, okay. You know, so I kind of you can see why she, she was cast in that, and I don't think she'd. Because she's done some amazing work since then, where she's stretched all different types of muscles, and I don't think she had all of that quite at her disposal here. So she was still playing it a little bit gentle, but she's still lovely in the role, and she's still yeah charming, and you know, and and has the thing I like about Michelle Williams is she can hold in a kind of like she she can have kind of quite a lot of tragedy in her eyes, and be, kind of feel that sense of she's just holding it together, just holding it together, you know. And you do find out, you know, that she she's going through a few things with the the town's biggest dickhead that you just like why why are you even remotely going it's, it's one of those things that that baffles me in the real world and it could you know it, it massively baffles me in movies is when the nice girl goes out with an absolute bully horrible person and you just want to be mm. like why 
it's just dumb. <laughs> is it a stereotype though? Is it a is it a, is it a tool for the script? I think it is, and it, yeah, and I, I it was one of my notes is I I hate small town bullies in films like, and I know no one likes bullies. It's the point of them, but I just find it quite boring that we always have to deal with them, and, and very rarely do, do directors or people do something slightly different with small town bullies. You know, and yeah. they they always like he's the like the, the small town bullies in this film, which is I think it's like Chris, and it's also Joe. The Truglio, who plays, um, he's from, from Brooklyn. <laughs> he's, he's amazing in Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he's got such a small little weird part in this. Yeah, he's just like like the bully's mate. But I, I you know, like I, one of the things as well that I found about this film is it's it's very similar to Garden State in a lot of ways. It's kind of from the same era. It's New Jersey. It's a sort of indie film, first time rise director. Like death quite early on in the movie, that's the catalyst for change and mm. coming to a strange place. Um, but one of the things that I really love in Garden State is there is a scene where he's he's with um, his girlfriend and they're in the bar, and then his his mates come in and they're all kind of loudmouth bully like bullyish characters, you know. And you think, oh, this is this is going to be the scene where there's a bit of confrontation. There's going to be you know like the you know he's going to have to pick between his friends or his girl. She's going to be offended, and and it's going to be that thing that we've seen 101 times. But instead, the bully comes in and goes, oh, I'm sorry about shouting that. I didn't realize you were together. So come on, let's get drunk. And then it cuts to the next scene and they're all having fun. And you're just like, oh, that's subverting, so nice. To, subverting that's expectation. That's so nice to have done that. Like, yeah. just because you, you would actually go, oh, no, we're doing this thing and you know what's coming. And then to go, no, actually, it's fine because, you know, nice people tend to, on the whole, have nice friends. So it wouldn't make sense that this nice guy has a bunch of assholes for a friend. Mm. You know, and if she gets on with him, then she probably got on with his friends and they clearly do. And they, they go off and then they're having a nice, like playing around the swimming pool, I think is the next scene. So, you know, I mean, I, I do get annoyed by, by bullies in films and she is going out with one of those bullies at, at the start or she's at least been impregnated by one of them. Impregnated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom, what a, what a way of words you have about that kind of thing. Impregnated. I, I mean... Looking at Chris, there was no romance there. there was... No, you're right. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a tough situation in some respects to the script on this one because I think they really give Finn the chance to, to develop and take time um, and you learn to um, kind of adapt with his character and understand his plight. The similar treatment is given to Olivia um, and Joe, who... You originally, I, you know, I was at first when I saw Joe, I thought, okay, I get it. Like he's a bit much, like I can tell he's a nice guy, but he's the kind of guy that if you were getting a hot dog and somebody started being overly friendly um, and overly familiar, you'd be a bit put upon. You'd be a bit like, oh, okay. You know, what's wrong with this person? Why do they want to be so involved? Um, so they take the time with that. But other characters I think suffer. I think the bullies or the the people that are discriminatory are very paper thin, unfortunately. And yeah, Chris is one of them. He's just a bad guy. Yeah, he's there for he's, he's there to serve needed. the plot. No, he's not needed. That, the scene in which he comes up and and um, confronts uh, Finn with uh, what's her name, Emily. Emily. Yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't necessary. Yeah. What did it add to the plot? No. No, and, uh, that 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 scene does lead on to my least favorite scene in the whole film, which annoys me every single time, which is the fucking train. Like he he gets drunk in a bar, he has a bit of a ruck outside, oh. stumbles along a train track, and then you see a train coming towards him, and you're like, oh no, he's going to get hit by a train, and then he wakes up on the train line, 
And you're left to going like, well, did the train roll over him or was the train in his so head? Or... I, I read that. I read that as a bit of cruel irony. The cruel irony being that he was at his lowest point and he was drunk and upset and unhappy. And he kind of accepted that the train was going to kill him because he's laid in the middle of the tracks. But the cruel irony I, I read was that he's too short for it to hit him. That once he fell flat on those tracks, it just rolled over him. I just, I just don't know if that would work. I don't think it would because surely somebody with dwarfism and somebody who does not have that, um, uh, it's not an affliction, but you know what I mean. Difference. Difference. When they're laid flat, they're the same yeah, level I, from the ground. Again, I, I just think, is it is it trying to be just a little bit like indie cute and it's, it's you know, it's representative of, you know, the life coming at him. The um, train rolls over him because it destroys his watch. Yeah. I hate that scene. I don't think it's necessary. Let's go, let's go back a little bit because we, we, we've jumped the gun a little bit and we can, and I think in terms of plot, as, as I said in my very brief summary, it is, it is one of those kind of films where not a lot happens. It's all character. You've got, yep. you've got these three people that, and I think one of the, the sort of themes of it is kind of like lonely people who are alone. You know, they're, they're all isolated through different means, you know, Finn is in a kind of self-isolation. He's kind of rejected society. Yep. Joe has been stranded there because his his father's become ill. So he's having to work this down on his own. And Olivia is in a similar sort of self-isolation as well because she's unable to move on from the grief of losing her son. And so we see these kind of three lost and lonely people slowly coming together. And then it, one of those things, again, where I would have quite liked it if the movie had had actually been able to have a plot that just meant that they just kept growing together through to the end but it does do a little bit of a kind of a kind of quite a classic thing of like at the end of kind of the two-thirds point give a reason for them to kind of break apart you know and then they all kind of fall out a little bit with each other and then they kind of come back together for the end again and and that's kind of your film really mm. but you know i think i think and but so in plot wise there's, there's not a huge amount happening but there's definitely some some big themes like i said lonely people who are alone but then also i was starting to wonder whether there is a kind of a metaphor with between like the different stages of grief almost as well, because you've got Joe who is you, you imagine in the process of losing his father's, you, we learn he's very ill and you imagine he's on his way out a little bit. Uh, Finn who has recently lost his friend and his connection to the world. And then you've got Olivia who's been living with this for two years. So they're all at kind of these different, different phases of, of loneliness and grief. And together, I guess they, they help, they help each other out really. But I think Olivia is probably the slightly more extreme case and is almost the the main point of the movie because, as we said, Finn, Finn is kind of one of those silent people who forces other people to talk by his silence. Like, And you see that with, with Emily and with Joe. Like, The less Finn says, the more people say around him. Mm. But it's Olivia who becomes like the real kind of tragedy of it. And it's it's her that ultimately I think we as an audience start kind of wanting to save a little bit and also you know, in you know Finn literally does save her towards the end when she's kind of accidentally on purpose overdosed because accidentally on purpose accidentally on purpose kind of lost track of how many pills she'd taken so you know I think I think it's, it's interesting the layers of of sadness underneath what is quite a thin plot but there's just so much there's so much deep water underneath and so many big themes happening and I think like I said Olivia is probably the 
the real tragedy of the whole of the three of them. I think um, she's definitely got the most grief and she's the one that's been living with it the longest in isolation. You know, Finn, Finn has this loss of Henry and very quickly his life moves to a different place. He, he physically moves somewhere and he very quickly, I mean, he's, he's there literally not even a day and he meets Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not even a day after and that, it's nearly, he's nearly killed by Olivia in, <laughs> in a very uh, funny introduction. And one of the um, brief, you know, real in your face, humorous moments of the film where she nearly runs him over twice, which was great fun. The other thing is that, you know, you get with Joe that I think he's distracting himself. He wants to constantly uh, constantly be around Finn and Olivia because they distract him from thoughts about what's happening with his father. Mm-hmm. Finn is looking for um, solace and, and uh, to be alone, I think, to try and keep the pain out from the world. And Olivia is numbing everything. She's just looking to numb everything. And I think, yeah, you were absolutely right. They're just different ways of dealing with grief. It's an opportunity for them to all learn something from each other and to try and, and hold each other up. And that's the final shot of the film, right? Yeah. And I love that. See, I love the, I love the bravery of ending your movie on a character moment of the three of them, just having a kind of a non-conversation. It was a very non, I was surprised. Yeah, I kind it of like it. It was a very non conversation. And I, I think it's because it, it it leaves you on a note of wanting more. And I always like these character movies where not a lot happens, but by the end, you start, you, as as you, you get a sense of, oh, it's going to end. You go, I don't want it to end. I don't want to leave these people behind. I had the same thing with like Dazed and Confused. At the end of that, you go, I, I don't want to, I want to go and buy Aerosmith tickets with these guys. Where, like, I don't, I'm not ready to, to leave. And, and I think by that point, with their characters as well, is they've, they've, they found their level. You get the impression that Olivia is is on the up now. You know she's she's kind of she's had her worst moment and she's getting the help that she needs and she seems quite happy. And they're all slightly stoned. You get the impression and and they're all kind of having having a laugh and a smile, which is something you haven't really seen the all three of them do comfortably together. It mm. just have like this nice moment and they're just talking about buying Emily glasses because it's worth it to have the librarian fantasy (laughs) yeah i thought that was a really funny um final line to kind of finish on literally that uh finn should buy emily glasses because she's a librarian and he should do the sexy librarian thing with her yeah yeah and it's olivia that's just like do it yeah i think that's pretty (laughs) cool i really like that it's a bit can i uh, backtrack a little bit there's an odd the kind of thread in this that Olivia could potentially have been a love interest for Finn. Mm-hmm. They do kind of awkwardly kiss at one point. And then at another point she says, I'm not your mother and I'm not your girlfriend. So there is this weird, there was that weird thread running through there of like, what, what were they going for? Was there an attraction? Was there something there? And obviously I think the, the actual, sub uh line of this is that she's just not ready she she can't actually really be with anyone she's still having serious issues with her ex-husband or you know her husband who she is estranged from and i don't know it just it felt a little odd because we had emily on the other side who is younger uh, more traditional somebody that finn could potentially learn and be with 
And Olivia just seemed like a very odd person to step into that role as well. So I was glad that they kind of sidestepped that, but they never resolved it. They had that kiss and that was it. Mm-hmm. Let's, it let, yeah. it leaves the audience in questioning, right? And and I and that's the thing with this this film. It's not really trying to give all the the answers and and kind of let the audience know how to feel. It does leave it very open. It's it's what do you call it? Mumblecore? Is it a is it that kind of genre? Close to it, I it's would close say. Close to it, yeah. I but I think you know it, it's definitely the. the I don't. I don't think it is. It is. It is mumbly core or some mumble core films. No, um, I think the dialogue. They they do have some really nice dialogue. Again, just you, you get that sense of an actor writing for an actor. You know, scenes where he like these two actors are really going to have something to work with. That I'm going to give them good stuff to work with. Well, what seemed like quite throwaway scenes, like Olivia and Finn talking on their jetty. It just it's just a really nice scene. I think it's down to the writing of it. Just just making it. You know, like just it, it just has a warmth to it, and you're interested in them. And again, I could just listen to Patricia Clarks and say anything really, and I probably would. All I could think during that scene was, I want to be sat on that jetty with Patricia Clarkson. No, right? It just, I was just jealous, really. That's all I could think. I was like, it looks sunny. They've got their feet in the water, or Patricia has anyway. It looks lovely. It's a strange one because, as well, the location of um, Newfoundland. It doesn't get a lot of time. It's you've got um, the the walking the right of way, so you walk a lot. Yeah. You get a lot of walking on on train tracks. There's some very cute, like you know, the bar is an, another depot. I think it's a converted depot. It's kind of the local local um, drinking hole. And then you get Finn's place, and then you get Olivia's very grand lake house. Essentially, that's kind of all you see. So. It's a. I I didn't get a. It could have been anywhere in America. It could have. It felt like very much Americana, but that kind of lake type American situation, small town getaway homes type place. But mm-hmm. you don't get much more than that yeah. about the location. And it's odd because I mean the first city as well. Did you know where the first city was? No, that was Hoboken. Yeah, but like there was no way of knowing that unless you researched it, right? No, the only reason I know that was because Finn mentions it to Joe in one scene. That he's from oh, Hoboken. He's from Hoboken. Yeah, they just kind of play it very loose with all of that stuff. Well, yeah, again, and maybe it's just like it's not it's not hugely important for the the plot. We don't we don't really need to no we don't the, the geography of the town and how it works and how it looks. But, but you're right, you know, it, it does have a, a very generic, broad brush, you know, to to the town and their houses and. And especially like, you know, Olivia's house where you kind of remind at the beginning of the film, you're told that this place is middle of nowhere. There's nothing out here. And she just has like, like a slice of heaven that she's living in by the looks of it. And there's plenty of people, there's plenty of stuff around her. I don't get that. You know, there's a convenience store that bloody delivers, you know, there's loads of stuff around there and she's painting and she's doing all her own stuff. It was lovely. Yeah. I was interested with her, with her paintings though. And I don't know if I was reading a little bit too much into it, but but her paintings of her son are all unfinished. Mm, and I, didn't read I was wondering whether that is partly because he was himself unfinished. He was a child. He fell off the monkey bars, we learn, and then died. Very so tragic. He, he is an unfinished work of art in her mind. Or maybe it's also because she's incapable of completing it because that would be almost finishing something and that would be an end. 
and she's struggling with with those ends do you think it's that you know if you finish painting that's the end of of her morning that's the end exactly of her, yeah because you know, she's completed it and she, that she's ending that go. piece so yeah. all these pieces are are kind of unfinished so her house is full of unfinished paintings mm. tragic it's very tragic yeah she she i think like i said it i think she's the main the main tragic thrust of the movie and she becomes the person that that ultimately we start worrying probably most for i think by two-thirds of the way through we're not hugely worried about finn he seems actually to be doing okay doing better yeah Do, doing better and, and i think we see you know like him starting to appreciate wanting and needing friends as well because i think i think initially when things go badly he kind of reverts back to well i don't need people anyway like i'm well, fine on my own but then you see him actually really upset and here's, sad about it here's a question henry he purposefully left that to finn yeah was there a moment whilst you're watching the film whether you wondered why has he done that has he done that to push finn out of his comfort zone get him somewhere away because there's a way that henry looks at finn during the screening of the film at the beginning of um uh the the story when the boring Carl guy is is watching uh, the train and doing the commentary, and you can see something. Henry's watching Finn. Henry gave me the impression that he knew a lot more about Finn than Finn realized. And I got, I kind of thought, well, actually, maybe this was purposeful. Maybe mm-hmm. he knew that that was coming, and he just wanted to get Finn away from the city, get Finn away from his routine, and to change things up, and realize that maybe life is better. And you can give a go at it. And Newfoundland, maybe, yeah, people see Finn and judge, but there's only a certain amount of them. And as Finn proves, you know, he stands up in the bar and says, have a fucking look, you know, this is it. Probably only has to do that really once. And then it's done. In a small town. Absolutely. In a small town. And, I, and then it's you know, I grew up in a small town. And yeah, once you, you know, and I, I could see people reacting in the same way, but once you've, you know, you've done that, like, have a good look and you're just a regular, then you become, he's just that guy, you know, and everyone moves on from it a little bit. And again, I think it is one of those scenes as well, where you start wondering how much is in Finn's head that he thinks that everyone's looking at him and and laughing at him. And I'm sure people are looking at him because he's different. He's a, you know, no one recognizes him. And he has physical differences that would make you kind of look and be like, oh, okay. But that doesn't mean that people are glaring at him. It doesn't mean you've got the the guy on the piano who stopped playing, uh, you know, and it's silence in the bar. Like I think, and, and the more he's drinking and the more upset he is because Joe hasn't turned up. You just wonder if it's, it's all of his own worries and psychoses and stuff that piling up on him a little bit. It, uh, it certainly seemed that way in that scene um, that it was more, yeah, there's a few characters in there that are not being particularly nice, but I think, you know, we established that there actually were people in the, in Hoboken who were, were maybe worse. Exactly. And well, I mean, Joe, Joe Latruglio buys him a drink at one point and we see it as, you know, like always mocking him by buying a drink. Maybe he's not, maybe he's just feels bad for earlier he's being, on. I mean, yeah, he's being a bit of a dick and you can see that, but I get the impression that apart from uh horrible boyfriend bully, that the rest of them kind of burn out of that out of their system. You know, yeah. they'll say something and then suddenly they get on with life. You know, there's no, there's no need for it. Um, and we see that, of course, with um, we failed to mention his little friend from a oh, little, little Cleo. Cleo, there we go. Yeah. Well, actually, while we're on the bar, back to the bar, 
that's where my other little voice voice casting little factoid oh. comes back in. Yes, please oh. do tell us. You know the waitress, the the woman behind the bar that pulls. Yes, the she has like one line of just like, "Do you want your fries there?" Yeah, she is the voice of Naruto in the English dub of Naruto, the anime classic. I can't say I've ever seen it. Well, I've never Naruto, seen it. I've got a lot of people of Naruto, that talk about it. Two categories: you either know Naruto. Oh, you do not know Naruto. Mm. <laughs> Mostly because it's one of those animes where you have to have watched like 600 episodes of the thing because it just goes on forever. So you are fully committed. Um, or you just kind of know of it as this, this Stranger Land made Naruto. I mean, I, I've always, when I used to watch Naruto, I, I only ever watched the dub version. Uh, not the dub, the, the one with subtitles. Anyway, so I can't really attest to, uh, she, she's male, 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 Flanagan, her voice work. But in all of the, the dub work and all the games and all the other movies and stuff, she is the voice of Naruto. Isn't that crazy? And Naruto is a male character. He is, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Simpson is voiced by a woman. Well, of course. I know. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So that's that's just one of those strange things where I was like, her? Okay. Like she, she's, she's barely an, an extra in it, really. She's, but good for her. A good powerful for her, career, indeed. Good, powerful career voicing Naruto. And then, yeah, sorry. And then we've also got Cleo, who kind of just pops up now and again. She sort of, I don't really know what she drives except for potentially just pointing people in different directions. But ultimately. She pushes pushes Finn to to try and be a little bit more out there to educate the youth. And, and, you know, so she, she gets him to come into the class to talk about trains because they both love about, they both love trains, right? But I think also she realizes that if she gets him to stand in front of a bunch of kids in elementary school, they'll see somebody with dwarfism much earlier than they would and probably drive, uh, uh, this would obviously be subconscious in, in, in her perhaps, but yeah, drive towards acceptance. And also it's better, it's good for him. You see him make a few jokes. Yeah, there's one kid, there's one kid that says some horrible mean shit and again, it's written that the kid is this kind of paper thin character who just says something mean. But uh, you know, before and after that, you get a little bit moment where you can see Finn's getting a little bit more comfortable. He's a little bit more confident with the fact that yeah, he's a dwarf. Who fucking cares? Let's go in and talk to these kids about trains. And once they've seen it, and you know, so we've moved. They move on from it in the conversation. It's probably accepted. Yeah. And might change their their outlook for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, as as kind of a lot of people with with kids will tell you that you know a lot of like kids aren't born with a huge amount of prejudice. It's a it's a learned thing yeah, from it's their parents, thing. and they right. learn from how their parents are reacting to someone. So, you know, like this is a moment for them to you know build their own opinions of of a person as opposed to looking to their parents to say how do we react to this person? Or my parents staring at them. I will stare as well. That's apparently what we do. So yeah, you know, it, it is it is nice. So she does have that nice little kind of that, that little thing at the end that she and it kind of segues into the final scene of the film with them discussing blimps and when were blimps invented? Yes, the blimps. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting thing. <laughs> I think the the only other scene that I, I wanted to mention as well, and it's only a tiny scene. I think for most people they probably won't even care about it, but it's it's when Joe and Finn are talking about sex and like as you know like finn slept with anyone 
And it's at that point where you kind of see Finn kind of shutting down again because he's just like, I just don't want to talk about it. And I could like really relate to that because, you know, as 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 a, as a gay person that had, you know, like I've often encountered situation where like people who are, you know, like a, we're, we're friends and we're, we're getting on well. And then after a few drinks, the kind of the questions start coming out about, and it, I always find it really frustrating because it reminds me that in my, and I think I'm on my own on this because I've talked to other people about it, but it just reminds me that I am different in their eyes, like, because they wouldn't turn to their other straight friends and be like, start discussing also. Oh, so, you know, like what positions do you like, you know, like just do, it would be weird, mm. but it comes up and it, it often comes up after a few drinks. Oh, that's and, because it's, yeah, it lubricates the conversations and the, your, you know, it lowers your inhibitions. Yeah. But it reminds me that those thoughts and those questions are always there. It's just the social contract that we all have when we're sober means that they don't ask it, but it is there. And I, f- I always find it just a little bit frustrating. I'm just like, oh, I just don't want to talk about it. Like, and I don't, I don't have to, t- you know, like you wouldn't yeah. ask me about it. I just don't want to. You don't have to. You don't have because to. Because you're not, about you're not actually that interested. Are you just kind of, well, it's almost under a little bit of like a, a curio, a strange thing that you don't, you know, and I, I don't think it's for your own personal betterment and understanding of, of gay culture. I think it's just a little bit like, ooh. ooh well, that's the sad thing. You're absolutely right. Because I have been in similar situations and I, I always judge on whether the person is being genuine. If the person is feeling a little bit looser because they've had a few drinks and they they actually do want to ask questions, and sometimes it can come from a place that is just trying to be a little cutesy, a little bit smart, and then I take the opportunity if I'm feeling it, and usually I am. Usually I'm feeling like right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell them about all of the the intricacies and the differences within gay culture compared to straight culture. And I've quite often been surprised with how positive uh, people have taken that and how, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people that come from very, very uh, different backgrounds to me uh, with cultures that really don't have an understanding of that kind of community. And you open up to them about it and they are, they, t- they take to it. I've had people um, message me calling themselves Big Bear after we've had a conversation they're like hey jake it's big bear because you know we've talked about the fact that in the gay community there are you know bears and which you know hopefully people know what bears are they're big burly kind of hairy blokes in the gay community lovely people usually quite cuddly and you know and then suddenly they're like well you know i'm a bear i'm gonna be a bear and that's how i'm gonna refer to myself to you and and it's actually quite nice and i'm i'm kind of thinking about the film Yes, people asking him questions and he doesn't want to re- respond to it. He doesn't want to talk about it because he's probably had it all his life. But if he, and I think it comes around to this, you know, if he does acknowledge some of that and just be like, look, this is what it is. This is who I am. Let me educate you. It's a small town, Newfoundland. Maybe, you know, he'd be able to start building some momentum. And of course, word of mouth as well. You tell one person, if somebody else asked that person about, dwarfism maybe they can explain well actually you know it's it, this is what it is you know mm-hmm. it's it, you've you've touched on a, a definitely a difficult subject and i think it, it's up to the individual you don't owe anybody anything finn doesn't well, owe any any other character in that film an explanation of who he is he is his own person his own man and he doesn't have to make excuses for the way he looks 
Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and in the same way that I'm sure there are there are people with dwarfism out there who would be happy to talk about sex, you know, and, and educate. Uh, in, like he is not in that place at that point. In the same no. way that I, I just I don't feel when people start asking me, it's like I I just don't feel like I want to be, you know, this educator right now. I don't want to play that role. Like I just want to just be doing my own thing right now, and it and it shouldn't be up to me to educate you. If you're interested, go and Google it. Like and. I think, you know, he's at that point in the movie, at least, um, you know, he is, he's in that place. And then who knows, like by, you know, if we caught up with them two, three years down the line, he might be a lot more open about this stuff and a lot yeah. more communicative. But I, it just, it just resonated with me and that the response of it as well and how, how he acted it as well. And you could see that that was coming from a, a place of truth for potentially, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming for Peter Dinklage as well, that like he, you know, he must have had those feelings of just like, oh, I just here we go. Like, uh, you know, the, these questions always come out eventually. And right now in this place, I just don't, I don't want to, I shouldn't have to talk about this. I shouldn't have to explain myself to anyone. Yeah. I think you've, you've stumbled on, onto something really profound on, uh, in that um, kind of area with that character and how it's, I wonder if there's, you know, other communities and people that have had that response to it. Personally, I felt for his plight, but I didn't I didn't put that that together with maybe some of the similar occasions that I've had. But I can definitely, when you've brought it up, can empathize and think about that. Um, like I said, usually I'm a little bit more, I, I guess, uh, patient in a way. But my God, I don't have time for people who are are ignorant and willfully ignorant and don't really want to learn. And I think you're right. There are a lot of people in this that, well, Joe's a good guy. Joe. Yeah, I think Joe's coming from a point of kindness with it. And I Joe think... is coming from a point of kindness. And also, I think Joe wants to be familiar with Finn. Joe wants to be able to joke. And, you know, because when Olivia leaves the house at the beginning, after falling asleep on Finn's couch, trying to apologize for nearly running him over twice, obviously, Joe immediately jumps to the conclusions and thinks that they've slept together. And he's always, he's doing the joshing like, hey, you know, you old dog, you know. And again, that's that kind of overly familiar, I want to be involved, I want to be part of the kind of joke. And and actually, one of the really touching bits for me was when Joe says, if you're going to do something later, can you let me know? Mm-hmm. And Finn's like, no, we're not doing anything later. He's like, oh, I know. But if you do, can you let me know? Can you, can I come? He's like, okay, but we're not, you know, I'm not doing anything lately. He's like, okay, that's cool. But if you do, and I was like, he just desperately wants to be involved. He doesn't want to be too imposing when, you know, I don't think he's constantly following Finn around. He does give Finn some solitude and allows him to kind of dictate when Joe's allowed to be there. But he he openly kind of says to Finn, I want to be involved. If if you're willing, I'll be there. And I'm like, fuck, we need more people in life like that. Yeah. You know, I like that about Joe. And yes, he's ignorant and he's trying to learn a few things and he doesn't go about it the right way sometimes in the film. But he's a good soul, as, are, as are all of them. And that's what's yeah, nice yeah. And they all it, need you know? each other. Yeah. Without without Joe, that you know, they wouldn't probably have all hung out together, you know. And But then they all have these little things that, that connect each other and, and draw each other you know, they all need each other a little bit. Uh, and I think that's what, what makes it quite sweet is because, and that's where we end the film and that's where we leave them is that they have, they've kind of come together and realized we, we all need each other. 
you know, we yeah. work best when we're all together. We're all happiest when we're together and doing things. So let's just hang out together. And that's just going to be us. And you can imagine them from that point on, you know, that they always hang out together and that's just their lives. And guys, we all do need each other in life, especially during this time. And I think it's a nice time. You know, we've we've talked about this. It's been definitely a, a deeper episode than we usually would do and uh, a far more dramatic and kind of thinky film um, for for our first to die. But I think it's nice to reflect and say, yeah, you know, be kind to each other. Sorry, I'm not Ellen, but it's a good thing to to try and be kind and to think about each other. And that's a good message to take from the station agent. Yeah. And, and to build on that, the fact that being alone isn't, isn't the answer, you know, and actually you do need to connect with people to remind yourself of, of humanity and why, why we do this, you know, why we get up every day and why we carry on living our lives is, is, is enhanced by that human connection and having those friends and, and being able to share those moments. And I think, especially during this time, you know, of COVID, but that's really, it's really reminded us of how important that is, you know, because it has been until that point, a little bit easy to forget sometimes because we were seeing each other so regularly that you forget the importance and that you actually need to be doing this. It's not just a thing we do. No, you do need it. And I'm sure everyone around the world is feeling that, you know, mental health is, is definitely a hot topic at the moment. And, you know, you and I started this podcast and it's, it's certainly been helping me to be able to be Alone but together with you, Tom, during first to die. Um, focusing on about death, morbid fascination of death in films. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's look, they can't all be fun and happy. And actually, uh, I'm sure I mirror a lot of the feelings of any listeners that we may have accumulated that sometimes you need a thinky, sometimes you need a, a thinky film where you you contemplate life and you get a little bit sad and then you get a little bit uplifted and it reaffirms some of your points of views. And we're going to do many more. There are going to be many more. I've already thought of a number of um, beautiful, sad, dramatic, deep uh, movies that we should discuss because that's what life's all about. That's probably a good place to wrap it up. So 2003 film, Station Agent, go try and check it out. You may have to go through nefarious channels now like i just I want to say we, we are not uh condoning going through nefarious channels um i had to i had no choice listen you didn't do that if i could the, if fici- I could phone the official Tom line is the official line is that magically a dvd appeared um <laughs> ordered to you by some wonderful benefactor and that's how you watched it that's our official line and we shall leave it at that mm, indeed well people can read between the lines i'm gonna put us. i'm gonna put 10 pounds in the post and send it to Tom McCarthy and be like, just don't, don't ask. Direct to him. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) Thank you, Tom McCarthy. And and thank you, Tom, for a wonderful uh, recommendation. Jake, you've said some things I wildly disagree with. How can I let you know? Well, I'm glad you asked, Tom, because I would just hate to say anything to offend yours or anyone else's delicate disposition. You should immediately jump on your keyboard and email podcast at firsttodie.co.uk or visit the website firsttodie.co.uk. Does that sound like a good plan? Uh, Well, 
that's one way, I guess. But you could also visit our social meds. We're First to Die Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You know, anyone can pop by, give us a like, give us a share, maybe even a little follow. Anything else I've missed? No, that's probably enough. Carrier pigeon. It's too far. Okay. Also, make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating if you've liked what you've heard. Till next time. Adios, Tom. Adios, Jake.